done with our study of Genesis. It's been a little over a year, and we are nearing the end of the book and nearing the end of Jacob's life. But I want to ask you a question before we start um, about a common word. What, what does it mean to be blessed? I mean, people use that, that terminology. You know, the Oxford Dictionary describes blessing as a beneficial thing for which one is grateful, something that brings well-being. You know, we might say that the cooler weather is a blessing. I like it when it's less than 100 degrees. I don't know about you. Uh, we might say that, um, you know, we're thankful for that. It's a nice thing. We might say, some of us, that, you know, a Christmas bonus is a blessing, isn't it? Maybe it helps pay off some of those car repairs that popped up unexpectedly. If you listen to, you know, the voices of the world around us, you may understand blessing to mean success or achieving your dreams. You know, that's a blessing. And maybe the NFL star, you know, interviewed after the game said, man, it's just a blessing to get to be here, right? You know, and that's all great. That's all good. But what does blessing mean in the Bible? That's our question for this morning. It's because, you see, the theme of blessing has been central to our study of Genesis. This blessing is a theological concept that it's a thread that runs all throughout the book. If you remember all the way back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we saw that God blessed his creation, didn't he? He created everything, the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and called them very good. That's a blessing. God provided everything that was needed for his creation to flourish. But then we know what happened in chapter 3, that sin entered the world, and everything changed, didn't it? Nothing was the same. Creation now lies under not a blessing, but a curse. Sin has brought death into God's world. It has shattered our relationship with God, separating us from him. Sin has shattered our relationship with each other, wrecking marriage, wrecking friendship, wrecking racial relations. Sin has brought damage and destruction. We see in the flood and we see at the Tower of Babel that judgment can, for a time at least, limit the spread of this curse, but it cannot cure it. It will take a work of grace to do that. And we see this work of grace beginning in chapter 12. Remember, God called a man who at the time was known as Abram, later became known as Abraham. And against the dark backdrop of all this cursing, all this death, all this judgment, this broken creation, against the backdrop of all of that, God promises blessing. He promises to bless Abraham and through Abraham to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And what does this blessing mean? This blessing that God has promised to Abraham and through Abraham to all the families of the earth? Although this blessing, as we see in Genesis, includes a promise of land and offspring and God's favor, this blessing, when it reaches its final end, will result in nothing less than the eventual reversal of everything that went wrong back at the beginning. It's a promise of grace that meets the deepest human need, a need that we all have, but a need that you and I are absolutely powerless to resolve on our own. This promise of grace will bring about reconciliation with God, the removal of sin from those who are guilty, and rescue from death. 
We've labored, labored to emphasize in, throughout our study of Genesis the importance of this blessing, that the blessing promised to Abraham is really the foundation for our salvation. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that people who are outside the family of Abraham, like you and me, could be forgiven of our sin. Foreseeing all of that, it says that the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Later on in verse 14, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles. That is what blessing means in the book of Genesis. This is redemption, but it would not come quickly. And it would not come easily. God himself would have to take on human flesh and taste death in our place before this blessing could come to all the families of the earth. Well, it's against this backdrop of this big picture promise of blessing from God that I want us to read these words from Jacob in Genesis 49. As he pronounces his own blessing on his sons, he recalls their past and he gives a hint of their future, a hint of the destinies for the tribes that would come from his son. So I want to draw your attention now to Genesis 49, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jacob called his sons, all 12 of them, and he said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. You see, the time has come for Jacob the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, to die. And so he gathers his sons to him. And you can imagine them all there. We saw last week in chapter 48 that he's at this point so ill, so weak that he's bedridden and can hardly even sit up. They, can, they gather around the bed with bated breath to hear his final words. These are the final words of the patriarch, the bearer of the covenant promises. And as he addresses his sons, we find three important truths about the blessing of God. The first truth is this. We see, number one, that God blesses not the perfect, but the penitent. God blesses not the perfect, but the penitent. We see this as he addresses his first four sons. He starts with Reuben, the oldest. Look in verses three through four. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What we see in verses three through four is Jacob begins this poetic word of prophetic blessing to his sons is that Reuben actually forfeits the blessing. As the oldest, he was first in line to receive the birthright, the promise that he would be the new head of the family when Jacob was gone, that he would have prominence over his brothers. But the rising swell of praise, as he talks about Reuben being his firstborn, his might, the first fruits of his strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, this rising swell of praise is quickly dashed by an anticlimactic curse. Reuben's God-given privilege and status as the firstborn is forfeited. And it's forfeited because of his ungodly character. He says, you are unstable as water. If you remember back in chapter 35, Reuben's sin that, 
that Jacob is referring to here, going up to his father's couch. His sin was not simply one of immorality as he lay with his father's concubine. His sin, even worse than that, was a sin of presumption. He sought to establish himself as the heir by taking his father's concubine. This was not just adultery, it was a power grab. Seizing status for himself, but we see here that it backfired. Reuben is passed over and his firstborn privileges are, rev- are revoked. And if you remember back in chapter 35, it says that Jacob heard about it, but he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. At the time, he had been silent, but now the time has come for Jacob to speak, and he directly rebukes Reuben for his wicked deed. He says, you, in verse 4, you went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. But then Jacob also denounces Reuben's failure before his brothers. He says, he, he went up to my couch. Everyone would know that Reuben was passed over, and everyone would understand why. Israel's history, as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, would bear these words out. No prophet, no judge, no king ever came from the tribe of Reuben. But then he moves on down the line to address his next sons. And we start to wonder, so will the next in line receive the birthright? But we see in verses 5 through 7 that Simeon and Levi also forfeit the blessing. He says in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob starts off by saying that Simeon and Levi are brothers. They are full-blood brothers. They share not just Jacob as a father, but they share the same mother as well. But all of these 12 are technically brothers, right? Well, what Jacob is indicating here is that although they are technically brothers, he really means that they're two peas in a pod, that they are partners in crime. They share a similar character. They're cut from the same cloth, and they've cooperated in sinful actions and will therefore share the same fate. They too are passed over as candidates to receive the birthright because of their wicked deeds. If you remember, they had deceived the men of Shechem. Their sister had been violated. And so they lied to those men. They said, if all of you are circumcised, we'll intermingle with you. Our tribes will combine and we'll just put this whole ugly thing behind us. But then, while all the men were recovering from their surgery, they came in and slaughtered them all. They killed all of them. And they took all of their possessions and their families and their livestock as spoils of war. Jacob denounces their motives as unrighteous. He says they are full of anger. What they did was marked not by justice, but by cruelty. And he says that their actions were unjust, that their actions were excessive, that they were impulsive. This willfulness, on a whim, out of spite, they hamstrung oxen. Jacob is horrified by what they've done and seeks to distance himself from their shameful legacy. He says, let not my soul come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. And their destiny, according to Jacob, is to be scattered And this would come to bear as we read the rest of the Old Testament. We see that Simeon would inherit land in Canaan along with all the tribes, but it was a little island that was actually surrounded by the land possessed by Judah. Simeon also had a few cities that were scattered in the north. 
Levi actually inherited no land officially. They were scattered throughout all the different cities of the nation. However, in a gracious twist, Levi's offspring would be called to the priesthood. And so they would come to experience this scattering one day actually as a privilege. But the point here is that like Reuben, Simeon and Levi have been passed over. Number one, number two, and number three have all forfeited the privilege, the status of the firstborn because of their sin. But then comes Judah. Then comes Judah, and here is where I want to spend a little bit more time, because here we find an incredibly significant passage for us. If you're reading the Bible through, sometimes you come to sections like this, and you may feel it's a bit repetitive, and you might not understand what's going on, but as we take just a moment to consider what's being said here, we will find that these words actually shape the history of Israel, and shape ultimately the history of the world. We see that Judah receives the blessing. Look in verse 8. Judah Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? We'll stop right there. If you remember from last week... Jacob had actually adopted Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and given them a great blessing. We know that right now Joseph is actually the prominent brother, right? I mean, he's the one, although he had been sold as a slave in Egypt and then unjustly accused and sent to prison and forgotten there, remember that Joseph had been promoted and elevated to be basically the viceroy of Egypt, the second in command over all the land. Joseph is the one wearing the crown and the kingly garments. Joseph is the one that all the brothers have been bowing down to. But Jacob says the prominence of Joseph will only last for a generation. The birthright, the claim to headship over the family, that would be perpetuated through the coming generations of Judah. I want you to notice here the, the, even the words and the imagery that, that Jacob uses. You know, the name Judah, if you and I were, were fluent in Hebrew, we would know that Judah is actually very similar in sound to the Hebrew word for praise. It literally means, let him be praised, or he will be praised. It's really a poetic play on words. This whole section is poetry, but in English it doesn't always come across. Our poetry usually rhymes. Well, Hebrew poetry is usually more structured about parallel thought and, and sometimes wordplay, things that sound similar. And if we could even read this in Hebrew, we would hear Jacob saying, Yehuda, Ata, Yoduka, Aheka. There's a flow to it. There's a rhyme. The words even have sort of a rhythm to it. But even more attention-grabbing than the sound is the significance. What Jacob is saying is that Judah is going to be supreme over his brothers, that the status of headship over the family belongs to him, and he will be supreme, notice, not just over his family, verse 8, but also over his foes. Not only will his brothers praise him, but he says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. To have your hand on the neck of your enemies, that symbolizes dominance, Power. It will take great power to achieve this. Jacob says, Judah, you are destined for power, victory, dominance. This idea is picked up and expanded in the imagery of a lion in verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Any of you guys own a dog that maybe gets mad if you mess with its food? You guys seen that before? 
I mean, you don't mess with a dog while it's trying to eat, right? Well, even more than that, nobody messes with a lion, okay? There's other animals, you know, in different parts of the world that when they kill something, they'll drag it off and hide because they have to protect it. Somebody bigger and stronger might come along and steal their kill. But a lion eats wherever he wants because nobody's going to mess with him. He's powerful, the king of beasts. That's, That's the imagery that Jacob is using to describe Judah's power and Judah's dominance. They are the top predators on the food chain. And need not be afraid of anyone or anything. And Jacob says, Judah, this is your destiny. This is your destiny. He says that this power and this prominence, it will not fade. Look in verse 10. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The scepter or the ruler's staff is a symbol of kingly authority. This phrase, between his feet, is a euphemistic reference to his descendants, Generation after generation of kings are going to come through Judah. What a blessing. What an amazing prophecy that Jacob declares over his son Judah. Now, I want you to think for a minute. Reuben and Simeon and Levi were passed over for the blessing. Why? Because of their sin. They forfeited it because of their wicked actions, their disobedience to God. But if you remember what we've studied in the book of Genesis... Judah's no saint, is he? He has a history. He has his own checkered past. If you remember, he was actually the ringleader of the plot to sell Joseph into slavery. That's not a good look. Judah has some skeletons in the closet. Not only that, remember Judah was exposed publicly for his mistreatment of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He deprived her of her rightful husband. He made her a promise that he never intended to keep, dooming her to a life of widowhood and singleness in her father's house, even though she had a rightful claim to marriage to his third son. Not just that, but he got her pregnant and didn't even know who she was. Judah is no saint. So why is he not passed over? Why does Reuben get skipped and Simeon and Levi get skipped? And why does Judah get this incredible blessing of headship and power and dominance and kingship? Well, here's the key. It's because Judah, unlike his older three brothers, demonstrated repentance. Repentance. God blesses not the perfect, but the penitent. It's a spiritual truth that we see fleshed out here in this blessing. And Judah demonstrated this repentance. He demonstrated evidence of a changed heart and a transformed character. When confronted with his sin, he didn't try to make up for it like Reuben did. Remember, Reuben had schemed to try to rescue Joseph and return him to his father, not because he loved Joseph, not because his conscience bothered him, that what they were doing to Joseph was wrong. Reuben was trying to get back on his dad's good side. By his own good works and good deeds, he was trying to make up for his past mistakes. That's not what Judah does. Remember Simeon and Levi, when they were confronted with their sin, had they repented? No, they had stubbornly argued that their actions in Shechem were justified. They were defiant when rebuked for what they had done. But unlike them, Judah owned his failure. When he was confronted with his sin, he acknowledged it. He acknowledged his unrighteousness, 
and he turned from it. You know, it's one thing to be honest about your sin. It's another thing to turn from it and forsake it. And that's what we see in Judah. Though he stumbled, though he fell, he acknowledged his sin, he turned from it. And we see the development of his character, that he's a changed man. We see this in later life, his concern for his father. How, remember, he took personal responsibility for his brother Benjamin. Joseph, in disguise, had seen his brothers coming and needing food during famine. He had given them food and sent them home. And he'd kept one of them back as a hostage and said, if you want food and if you want to see your brother set free, you need to bring your youngest brother Benjamin so that I can know that you're not feeding me a story, so I know you're telling the truth. Jacob didn't want Benjamin to go. Rachel was his favorite wife, and Rachel only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, and he'd already lost Joseph. He thought Joseph was dead. He didn't want to lose Benjamin, too. Judah had said, Father, entrust him to me. I'll take care of him. He took personal responsibility for Benjamin. Although he was previously selfish and cruel and proud, In the end, we see him becoming a man who is sacrificial and compassionate and humble. When he came before before Joseph, we see his care and concern for his father. He doesn't want his father's heart to be broken. It's a big change from back in the day when he was more than happy to sell his brother off for some money, even though he knew it would devastate his father. He's a changed man. And most powerfully, we see the depth of the transformation in Judah's heart because when they get back to Egypt with Benjamin, Joseph tests his brothers by planting his personal silver cup in Benjamin's sack of grain. And then he demanded that Benjamin be his slave for life. And what did Judah do? He goes before all his brothers as the spokesman and begs for Benjamin's release. He says, please don't do this to my father. It'll break his heart. And even beyond that, Judah actually offers himself in exchange for Benjamin's freedom. Benjamin was the favorite son, just like Joseph had been. Instead of conveniently getting rid of him to his father's grief, Judah says, let me take his place. Don't break my father's heart. I'll be your slave forever instead of him. Jesus would later say in John 15, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. This is a radical change that's taken place in Judah. And his beautiful act of substitution, exchanging himself for his brother, it foreshadows the future sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Where Jesus says, I love you enough to take your place, to bear your penalty so that you can go free. I will die so that you can live. I will suffer so that you can have joy. I will experience the wrath of my father so that you can be reconciled with him and restored and redeemed. We see this taking place in Judah's life. It's because of this change of heart and his noble actions that demonstrate that change that Judah receives the privilege of receiving the blessing from his father. God doesn't bless perfect people. That's good news for us because none of us are perfect people. But God does bless those who are penitent, those who confess their sin, those who turn from it and forsake it. This is the path to receiving God's blessing. But there's more here than just giving Judah and his tribe prominence. There's an even greater privilege and promise that unfolds because he's not done talking about Judah and the tribe of Judah and these rulers that will come through Judah. Look in verse 10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. You might say, what in the world is that about? Good question. We're going to explain it here in just a minute. But here's the second point. If the first point is that God's blessing comes not to the perfect, but to the penitent. The second point, which we see here in his words to Judah, is that God's ultimate blessing comes through the coming king. God's blessing comes through the coming king. Jacob says that kings will come from Judah. The scepter will not depart, right? But he also points out here that each ruler would actually be a temporary steward of the scepter, waiting for the ultimate king who would come. He says, until, until, that little word until is very important. Until tribute comes to him. Who is this him? Who is this person? Who is this king? It's a future royal ruler descended from Judah. Each king before this king would only be a temporary steward of the scepter. To this ultimate king, who would one day come, tribute would come not just from the other tribes, but from the nations, the obedience of the peoples. Now, this is something special. He's more than a king of Israel. He would be a king over other kings. The lion of Judah will roar, and the nations will come trembling. And what will it be like when this ruler comes? Well, we see that when this ruler is established, it will bring about the dawn of a new age, a time of peace and blessing and abundance, a life that is so different than life under the curse. Life under the curse is hard. Sweat and thorns and toil and death and war and conflict and tumult. But look at the incredible imagery that we see in verse 11, that this king who's coming, that tribute and obedience to come to him, It says in verse 11 that he will bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Look at the imagery here. First of all, notice what he's riding. He's riding not a war horse. He's riding a donkey. Donkeys were ridden in times of peace. Riding a young animal like this symbolizes a time of peace. Later, the prophet Zechariah would pick up on this imagery as he spoke of the future king to come. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on what? A donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, this future king, who comes bringing salvation and peace He's riding a donkey. And notice where he ties his donkey up. Look at his hitching post. He hitches his animal to a vine. And you have to ask, what's the significance of that? Well, think about this for a minute. I mean, donkeys, like a lot of animals, they'll eat anything they can reach, right? Anywhere you tie your donkey up, he's going to mow a little circle as long as his tether can reach. Why would you tie your donkey to a vine? Vines are delicate, They're breakable, and if you damage them, they won't be able to bear fruit. Vines are valuable. They're expensive. They're not just some common weed. They're something that takes years to grow and takes cultivation and careful, tender care. Basically, he's saying this is like blowing your nose with a $100 bill. 
oh, there's a vine, I'll tie my donkey up there because there's so, these vines, it says, apparently will be so plentiful, so abundant, so common that this king won't mind tying his donkey up to a vine. This is amazing imagery. It indicates a time of unprecedented abundance and plenty. And this imagery continues. Notice that he washes his garments in wine. Wine's expensive because it takes time. You have to have these vines and, these, and it has to bear the right kind of fruit. And it takes a process to produce it and then to store it and then to serve it. I mean, there's a big process. But he's going to wash his clothes in wine. Well, that's not a big deal, is it? If the land is flowing with milk and honey, if it's a time of unprecedented abundance. You see, the picture here that Jacob is giving us in poetic language is that under the reign of this king, life will be a never-ending feast where the wine flows, a time of abundance, a time of peace and rest. There's no war. The time has come to eat and drink and enjoy the plenty and abundance of God's blessing. As we read all of this imagery, peace and abundance and salvation and the tribute of the nations and the worship of the nations coming, we start to ask, who is this coming king? I want to ask you kids in the room, maybe those of you who are younger than 10, think about it. Who would be a king that comes through the line of Judah that all the other kings would worship? They will bring in a time of peace and rest and blessing. Does that sound familiar? Who do you think that is? You can say it. Who is it? It's Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus. On this side of the New Testament, we know the answer to this question of who this mysterious king is. I mean, think about this just for a moment. In John chapter 2, we find Jesus coming to a wedding feast, right? And he's not, he's not performed any miracles yet to this point. And they run out of wine. And what's the first miracle that Jesus does? He changes the water into wine, taking something that is common and turning it into something that is precious, something that is saved for times of celebration. It's a sign, it's a signal that the king of kings was here, that he's coming and that his reign brings about a time of unprecedented blessing. It's a signal that the kingdom was near. In Matthew 21, we find Jesus entering Jerusalem as her Messiah and what is he seated upon? Upon a donkey, isn't he, right? The foal of a donkey, a signal that the king of kings was here and that his reign brings about a time of unparalleled peace. In Revelation, the apostle John writes this in Revelation 5, that he sees one of the elders and he says to him, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Who's he talking about there? Jesus the Christ. This ancient blessing to Judah would be fulfilled one day in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is to Jesus that the obedience of the peoples will come. It is to Jesus that tribute will be brought. He will receive the praise and the worship of the nations. Daniel 7, 13, Daniel sees this vision. He says, behold, I saw this vision with the clouds of heaven and there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, to this incredible royal figure. It says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not 
be destroyed. In this ancient blessing pronounced by Jacob, we find hints of a glorious king who's bringing an eternal kingdom. He will have universal dominion. And when he comes to establish his throne, it will bring in a new age of joy and peace and blessing. And here's the good news for us. The peace and joy and blessing of a new age, a new kingdom where the curse has been banished. This blessing is promised to all who will bow the knee to this king. Our King Jesus bids us come to the feast. He has secured peace for us with God through his blood. And he is worthy of our worship, isn't he? He is worthy of our praise. He deserves all tribute. God's blessing is for the penitent. And it comes ultimately through his Messiah. You know, there's a lot of people pursuing blessing in this world. The blessing you can get through success. Maybe through a relationship. Maybe through money. Maybe the blessings of health, all of these other things. But listen, all these things pass away. But there is a new age coming in which eternal blessing will be given. And you can't find it in a relationship with a girl or with a guy. You can't find this kind of blessing in some sort of fulfilling career. You can't find this kind of blessing in money and all the things that money can buy you. You can't find this blessing through your own good works, through trying really hard to make up for all your mistakes and failures. You won't come to experience this blessing by denying that you're a sinner and pretending like none of that stuff ever happened. You will only experience the blessing that comes through this Messiah as you bow the knee to him, as you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And compared to the riches of God's grace that we find in Christ, every earthly blessing pales in comparison. Apart from Christ, there is only life under the curse, life that is marked by toil, life that ends with death and judgment. But in Christ, we find hope for a future kingdom, a promise of resurrection and life and joy. That's good news, isn't it? It's encouraging for those of us who live life under the curse, still dealing with sorrow and death and pain and sin. Our king is coming. He's already come once. And he came to bring salvation. And when he comes again, he will finish what he started. He will establish his kingdom and a new age of peace and blessing will be brought in for all who believe in him. But you know what? We're not there yet. We're not there yet. What do we do in the meanwhile? Is this blessing only future? Well, I think we see an answer to this as we look to Jacob's words to Joseph. There's 12 sons. We don't have time to cover all of them today. We're just giving our attention to the sons Judah, or Jacob rather, spends more time on. So he gives the most of his time to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then finally Joseph. Finally Joseph. So I want to draw our attention to his blessing on Joseph down in verse 22. And here we'll see our final point. God blesses not the perfect, but the penitent. God's blessing comes through the Messiah, the coming king. And then third, and finally, God blesses patient faith and endurance. Look at the blessing on Joseph. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers attacked him bitterly. They shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. 
From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the hand of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you. With blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph. And on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Just to bring us back into this story. Remember they are all alive and well in Egypt. All because of Joseph, aren't they? If it weren't for Joseph and everything that Joseph went through, all the bad stuff he experienced, all of his trials, all of his suffering, all of his mistreatment, if it wasn't for that, they likely would have starved to death in the land of Canaan. But in God's providence, he had provided rescue for the chosen family, rescue from the famine through Joseph and all the amazing twists and turns of his life. And now here we find at the end of Jacob's life, he expresses gratitude and gives honor and praise to Joseph for his unique character. He says he is a fruitful bough. That says something about who Joseph is. There's been a lot of good fruit that's come through Joseph. He's a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. He's overgrown. He is so fruitful. We know that this fruitfulness was memorialized in the naming of his son, Ephraim. Remember Joseph named Ephraim and says, God has made me fruitful. He sees his sons as a blessing and as a reward. And we see this fruitfulness evidenced in all the food that Joseph's been able to provide. I mean, Joseph is fruitful, think about this, is because of his placement and his, his planning, his wisdom in time of famine, that the people of Egypt survived the famine, that the surrounding nations could come and also buy food, and that specifically, Joseph's own family survived. Fruitful indeed is Joseph, the son of Jacob. But not only is he fruitful, we also see that Joseph persevered through adversity. The archers, it says, bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. Joseph went through a lot, didn't he? A lot of adversity. His brothers hated him stripped him of his coat, threw him into a pit, and then sold him into slavery. Slave traders don't usually treat people well. He had a little road trip with them all the way down to Egypt where he was sold to the house of Potiphar. And what happened there? Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of assaulting her, and he was thrown in prison. And there in prison, he was forgotten for years. This was all quite a threat to Joseph's faith in the promise, wasn't it? Arrows being shot at him. But Joseph endured. His faith remained. He was steadfast. How could anyone endure such adversity? Is this simply a comment on how awesome of a guy Joseph was? No, notice, notice what Jacob says. Though he gives rightful thanks and praise to Joseph, ultimately Jacob gives praise not to the faithfulness of his son, but the faithfulness of his God. Look in verse 24. His bow remained unmoved. Well, how did that happen? Verse 24, his arms were made agile. Someone else is at work here. Who made his arms agile? Who gave him strength? Who gave him skill? Who preserved his faith? Who made Joseph fruitful? His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Who gets the credit for Joseph's steadfastness? Not Joseph. It's God's power. Jacob says he is the mighty one. And he is able. 
Jacob knows it's God's protection and care and direction that preserved Joseph. That's why he calls him the shepherd. Shepherds guide, shepherds protect. He knows it is God's faithfulness to his promise that resulted in Joseph's perseverance. He calls him the stone of Jacob. Remember when Jacob was alone and fleeing from home and he he grabbed a rock to use for a pillow. And there as he slept at the place that would later be called Bethel, the house of God, he sees a vision of this stairway to heaven and God makes these amazing promises to Jacob, affirming to Jacob that all of his promises to Abraham and Isaac, he made them as well with Jacob When he calls God the stone of Jacob, he's remembering that rock he used for a pillow and remembering the covenant promises that were confirmed to him that day. He knows that it's God's power, it is God's faithfulness, it is God's keeping of his promises that has brought Joseph to where he is and provided rescue for their whole family. You see, the basis of Jacob's confidence and ours is the character and power of God. Do you believe that that's who God is? That he has all power? Can you say with David, the Lord is my shepherd? Are you convinced that his promises that he's made to you will be kept? And are you holding to those by faith? Jacob is confident that God would one day bring about everything that had been promised and more. He'd already seen God's faithfulness displayed and he was eager to see the rest come to fruition. You know, just as Joseph patiently endured his trials and came to experience great blessing, so we also must persevere. You see, true faith, the kind of faith that the Bible talks about, being a live faith, real faith, it's faith that endures to the end. Listen to what James says in James 1.12. This is for us. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God blesses those who patiently endure by faith. There is no blessing that remains for those who tap out, those who give up, those who quit. Those who fall away give evidence that their faith was never genuine. Listen to what Hebrews 10.35 says. The author of Hebrews exhorts us. He says, do not throw away your confidence. Referring to our faith, which has a great reward. And listen to this, for you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You see, faith is a call to endurance, to keep trusting, to keep believing, to keep holding on. Joseph didn't give up on the promises of God when he was in the pit, when he was in Potiphar's house, or when he was in the prison. And it's because of the endurance of his faith that he is able to enjoy the blessings of God. You know, things aren't always easy in life for us, but the call for us is to endure. 1 Peter 5.10 says, after you have suffered a little while, (laughs) doesn't always seem like a little while, but Peter says it's a little while. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you 
to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God's blessing is for those who continue in faith. But sometimes it comes after much suffering and after much waiting. But here's the good news. Just like we are called, like Joseph, to endure and to persevere, to be patient in our, and steadfast in our faith, well, just like God helped Joseph, God helps us as well. In our persevering, it is God who is ultimately working, the Almighty One who is a shepherd who always keeps his promises. Listen to Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. When your faith feels weak, when you feel like you can't go on, when the trials feel too heavy and the suffering is too painful, God says, I will help you. I will uphold you. It's my strength that will carry you to the end. Later on in that chapter, in verse 28, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. I do. He doesn't. His understanding is unsearchable. Mine isn't. His is. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. God calls us to persevere, but he doesn't ask us to do it alone. He says, I'll be with you. I will strengthen you. I love the words of Jude That last verse in Jude, we read it all the time as a blessing here in our church. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's who our God is. The one who's able to keep us to the end, till that moment when he will present us before the Father and say, this is one of mine. He trusted in me and I preserved him and we made it to the end together. Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We are called to endure, to persevere, right? There's work and effort and holy sweat involved. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But here's this encouragement, for it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'll tell you what, church family, I needed this truth this week. And maybe some of you need it today. Because life gets hard, life hurts, life's exhausting. And we need to know that God is for us, that he is with us, and ultimately, it is the power of his grace. It is the power of his promise. It's not the power of our faith that carries us safely home. It's good news today that God doesn't bless perfect people. He blesses repentant people who trust in him and who persevere in their faith. And that his blessing ultimately comes through Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus and his grace who leads us all the way home. We find some amazing truths. There's there's way more here we could go into. We don't have time for it this morning. I just want to encourage you with these things. Encourage your faith that through Christ, the repentant are forgiven and restored. That through Christ, the faithful will find one day their ultimate rest and reward. And the way we end this this morning is that to Christ belongs the ultimate glory and praise and worship and obedience. To this glorious king who is coming, he deserves our worship and praise. Do you find yourself aware this morning of your sins? I hope you're encouraged that there's an offer of blessing extended to you. Like Judah, 
Will you acknowledge your sin today and humble yourself before God and confess and receive his grace and forgiveness? Such repentance is possible and it's also necessary. God delights to redeem and restore sinners for his glory. Do you find yourself facing hardship and suffering this morning? Are you waiting on the Lord like Joseph in the house of Potiphar or in the prison? Have you been turned on? Have you been betrayed by those who are supposed to love you? Have you been treated unfairly or forgotten? God is able to strengthen you to endure. Look to him in faith. He can sustain you. He can preserve you. Have you caught a glimpse this morning, and I hope you have, of the glory of our Savior and King Jesus Christ? Do you see him today as the magnificent king who is worthy of worship and praise? Not someone who's here to make our lives better, but someone who deserves our complete adoration and submission and obedience. Do you believe that he brings blessing and abundance to all who bow the knee to him? I hope you do, and I hope you will. Let's rejoice in the sovereign goodness of our God who is bringing eternal blessing to his people. Let's worship the Christ for his glorious fulfillment of all of God's promises. And let's seek to humble ourselves in faith before him as our king as we wait for him to come. Lord Jesus, as we read these ancient promises, these sometimes shadowy poems in the Old Testament, we're thankful that on this side of the cross, we've been given clarity to see how all these things point ultimately to you. Lord Jesus, it's all about you. And it's because of your grace that we can repent and experience forgiveness because you took our place. Just like Judah offered to take Benjamin's place, you've taken our place so that we can be forgiven. You shed your blood for our sins, paid our debt so that we could be set free. And Lord, you, because of your grace, you call us to trust in you and you promise that you'll help us, that you'll be with us. Lord, sometimes we don't feel like a fruitful bough. We feel weak and vulnerable. We need you to sustain us and uphold us. And Lord, we know your word tells us that you won't break the bruised reed and a smoldering wick you won't quench. You are compassionate and tender Lord, some of us need that. We all need it, but some of us need it especially this morning. But Lord, especially today, we've seen your glory, that Jesus, you are King of kings. And we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, we give you glory today as we await your return. Fill our hearts with love and adoration for you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.